Well, welcome to Diversity Church, everybody. Today, I'm excited about starting a new series. This is going to take us through April. We're going to be actually talking about something called the five solas, all right? Sola is a Latin word. I'm going to kind of explain why we call it the five solas, because we're going to, in this series, be discussing the five truths or mantras of the Protestant Reformation. A lot of people have a question, why are there so many denominations? Maybe you guys have even come in the house with some of those questions. Well, uh, because the Roman Catholic Church kind of dominated the scene of Christianity, and they were controlling some of the narrative, and it kind of got off um, scripture, um, there were people called reformers, um, people that God rose up to help reform the church and bring it back to what God intended it to be when he set up the church in the beginning. And so we're going to look at what they believed are like the five essentials. And we as a Protestant church as well, we believe that these are essentials for the faith and for Christianity to be what it is at its core. The beauty that God made when Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail. These five things are like the core of what it's all about. And the reason why they are in Latin is because that was what the church at the time kind of spoke. The Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformers was only in Latin. Matter of fact, the common people did not even understand the scriptures because it was in Latin. So if they were in England and they were in the Catholic Church and they, just was a, they were a commoner, they could not read the scripture in their own language because it was illegal from the Catholic Church. So there's a lot here we're going to discuss. I'm not going to be Catholic bashing, but I just want us to understand where we come from as a church. And I want us to understand the core principles that we find in the scripture that these reformers kind of just grabbed a hold of. And so the very first solo that we're going to look at is called Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura, and if you guys are good at at least looking and trying to guess, you're going to probably understand what this means. Sola Scriptura means by God's word or scripture alone, all right? Every single one of these, again, is a mantra. Why now is Sola Scriptura a mantra of this Protestant Reformation, which basically started in, well, 13, 14, 1500s? Why is this mantra, by God's word alone, coming from the Protestant Reformation. Well, the Catholic Church, what they taught at their time, uh, and really what they even teach today, is that there are three equal authorities, okay? They do believe in Scripture as an authority of God, but they also believe in church tradition, or the church fathers, and the Pope. They all three have equal authority. Well, when the Popes and tradition started teaching things that were contradictory to Scripture, some of these men like Martin Luther and John Huss and John Wycliffe, when they saw that the church was teaching doctrines like in order to get out of purgatory, which they even brought a purgatory doctrine in that wasn't even in the Scripture, but when they started teaching things like in order to get out of purgatory, you got to buy this thing from the, from the Catholic Church, and it's going to get you some time off of your sentence in purgatory, when this type of teaching was going forth, people like Martin Luther stood up and they said, no, these things are not in the scriptures. These things are not what God has said in his word. And so they said, no, the supreme authority for faith and practice in the Christian church must be by God's word alone. All right. And so this was a very clear thing. 
All this kind of came to a head on October 31st. We, every Halloween, I celebrate the Reformation because of this. October 31st, 1517, this all came to a head when Martin Luther, who was a priest in the Catholic Church at the time, he actually nailed 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. You're going to see a picture here on the screen of young Jonathan Ember. Look at this picture right here on the screen, me and my best friend. We did some ministry in Europe right out of Bible college. And so I love this picture because we're standing at Castle Church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Those doors that he nailed those 95 theses to are long gone. Now they're metal doors uh, with the 95 theses on there. Now these 95 theses were just statements of kind of questioning what the church was teaching about selling indulgences as a way for people to find merit and get into heaven and get out of purgatory. He, he shared 95 things, and they were all in Latin at the time, but the, uh, some of the people that were in his school, some of the young people in the community, they took these 95 things, and they began to just spread it all over the place, and all of a sudden, you get the fire and the flame of the Protestant Reformation. It started going. So, of course, the church did not like this at the time because they were getting their authority challenged. And so they called Martin Luther to this legislative assembly. And this was in Worms, Germany. And they were calling him on the carpet, and they were basically asking him to recant. That all these things he was teaching about the scripture being the final authority... They were like, you got to recant. You got you to rebuke these things. Tell people that you don't believe them anymore. Tell people that it's just the Roman Catholic Church that you believe in. And he was like, well, I think I'm going to stand on the Bible, all right? I want to show you this other picture. This is from uh, my stepdad, Mike. He actually went to Worms, Germany. And where he's standing is where Luther had stood. There was a building here before, um, and, but over time it is no longer there. And so he's standing where Luther stood and gave this speech. All right, And this really, again, started what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. And he gave this speech, and it's often referred to as, Here I Stand. So where Pastor Mike was standing is where we all need to stand. It's where Luther stood. And he stood what? On the Word of God. As his final authority. By God's word alone, I'm going to live my Christian life and follow the principles that are there. Even if it contradicts what the popes or church history or tradition has taught. All right? Here is an excerpt of this speech. Listen to this. This is what Martin Luther says. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils because they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. This could have meant death to Martin Luther. Matter of fact, they were wanting to kill him. If it wasn't for the protection that he had in Germany from some of the other leaders in the political realm, he might have died because, after all, William Tyndale, another reformer, was actually killed and burned at the stake from the Roman Catholic Church just for translating the Bible into English. 
He was burned at the stake because the Catholic Church wanted to control the narrative of how you should worship God and what they wanted people to do. And at this time in history, they were raping and pillaging the commoner in the name of God. And so people like William Tyndale, Martin Luther, John Huss, I could go on and share about these other men like Zwingli who actually just said, listen, it's the word of God that's going to be our final and ultimate authority. This is an important thing. Why? Because popes and councils and tradition all change, but come on somebody, the word of God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. All right? So we're going to talk about sola scriptura. And where Martin Luther stood is what the Apostle Paul told us all to stand on. And I'm going to read in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6, of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Same stance where Luther stood on. He was standing on the gospel, on the word of God alone. By this gospel, Paul says, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. That's our hope. That's our foundation. Verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That what? Christ died for our sins according to what? The scriptures. That he was buried that he raised on the third day according to the what? The scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. From this portion of scripture with the Reformation in mind, let's explore sola scriptura. And I want to give you three things that sola scriptura gives to the church. Why do we believe? that the Bible is our final and supreme authority. Well, number one, if we look at Sola Scriptura and study this out, we recognize that it gives us a sure place to stand on. Sola Scriptura, knowing that it's the Bible alone that gives us everything we need for faith in Christianity and practice in Christianity, that gives us a sure place to stand on. Why is this important? Well, in a world of many ways... In a mind of endless feelings, sola scriptura is a sure foundation for us. Something that doesn't shift in the changing shadows, in the changing times. It is a sure foundation for us to plant our life and get our beliefs and get our life focus in. This is why Paul says, I preach the gospel to you in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you receive and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Listen, if it's God's word, we can stand on it. If it's God's word, it is a firm and sure foundation for everything in our life, for all of our practices, for all of our beliefs, for everything that we need to live a life of godliness. The scripture says it's been given to us through the scripture. It's something we can stand on. So today, if I feel like getting angry and fighting, if today I feel like sleeping around, if today I feel like overeating, if today I feel like getting drunk, am I just to go with my feelings? 
If today someone tells me over here there's this prophet and over there there's this other religion, if, if that's all we had to go on was feelings and whoever is saying whatever truth in their time is truth, if that's what we had to go on, we would be like what the scripture says is like a ship being tossed in every wind and wave of doctrine. I know this about myself and I know this about sinful humanity. Listen, if it's just up to me, today I might feel one way and tomorrow I might feel another. Today I might love my wife a lot and tomorrow she got on my nerves. If I'm just going about my feelings, if I'm just going about trying to understand what should I stand on and if it's just about how I feel, if it's just about somebody claiming this is truth, listen, I know how shifty I am. I know how shifty humanity is. I know how easy it is for me to change. I know how easy it is for me to change my mind. But listen, what we're saying with Sola Scriptura is we're believing in something that never changes. It is a foundation that is sure and never changing that we can stake everything in and believe that and it'll give us security in our life. Uh, it's what Martin Luther said, here I stand. I can do no other. Church, it is time for us in a day and hour that we're living in where everything is about how we feel or what the influencer said or whatever is pop culture. It's our day and our moment, church, to go back to something that has always been sola scriptura. This is everything we need for Christian faith and practice. It is a sure word. It's something we can stand on. It doesn't change with the shifting shadows and the shifting humanity. It remains the same. I love how Isaiah 40, 6 through 8 says this. Uh, he says, a voice says, cry out. This is the prophet Isaiah. And I said, what shall I cry? He says, all people are like grass. All their faithfulness. So here, here's, here's what we can expect from humanity, and you got to include yourself in this. All of their faithfulness is like flowers of the field. Looks good for a moment, but look at verse 7. The grass withers. The flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flowers fall. But look at this. But the word of our God endures forever. You want something you can stand on? Do you want something that you know is a sure foundation for your life, for how you live, for what you practice, for what you believe? Listen, look no further than the scriptures. The word of God endures forever. Martin Luther said, look, the popes and church councils, they've often contradicted each other. You know what doesn't contradict each other? It's God's word. 44 different authors, 66 books, over 1,600 years the Bible was written, and there's one message that doesn't contradict itself from beginning all the way to the end, Genesis to Revelation, that God loved humanity, that he sent his son Jesus to save humanity. Come on, somebody. He's coming back again because he loves the bride, the church. That is something that is sure a foundation that we can stand on. We wither. We fade. All of our faithfulness. Did you catch that? All of our faithfulness. 
if you've ever led a ministry, Justin, come on, you can give me an amen. All of our faithfulness and our volunteers' faithfulness, Miss Shauna, is like the grass. It fades. The flowers, they fall. Listen, if you've ever done life with anybody, it's so easy for us to change our mind. Oh, today I'm not feeling that great. How can we count on us? We can't even wake up early to come to church to serve when it is our time to serve. And we're wanting to believe another person about what they say is true and what they say is the latest and the greatest. Listen, I know myself. I know, I know other humanity. What has been tested for centuries is the word of God, this Bible, and it has stood against the popes. It has stood against history. It has stood against the flames and the firing squads and everything else, and it still stands. Why? It is God's gift to us that we can stand on as a sure foundation in our life. Look no further than sola scriptura. All right, that is one gift that it gives us, a sure foundation that Paul says, I want you to believe in this gospel, and that's where you stand. Here's the second. It gives us a metric to judge other voices as well. Now, look, there are billions of voices in this world. There are billions of people that say, this is the truth. That's the truth. This is the truth, right? Or there are many truths. Matter of fact, now it's all about it's your truth. Oh, this is a really weird time that we're living in when everybody has a truth. Well, how do we find truth? If everybody has one, like, and their truth differs than my truth, then again, how shifty is this? How do I know what is true? I I was looking up some stats just because I think this is evident of the day we're living in. According to CityFi, the average person sees 10,000 ads a day. 10,000 ads a day. Now, look, they're all telling you their truth, (laughs) that their product, if you get this product, it's going to change your life. You're going to be happy. It's going to change everything, right? We have 10,000 voices coming for us all the time. And some of these are voices of ads for, you know, again, just products or maybe even other religions or other ways. Again, there's there's 10,000 ads, and this is maybe even just commercial ads. But just think about all the voices we're constantly hearing in this world. How do we know what is true and what is error? What is right and what is wrong? I love how Paul wrote to his son in the faith, something that I believe the older I do this thing, uh, the older I get in Christianity, the more I see how important sola scriptura is. 2 Timothy 3.16, a father to his son. Listen, he says, all scripture is God-breathed. God inspired. He wrote this thing. And what did he write it for? And what is it useful for? It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness or training in what is right. In a world with all these voices, we need a voice that stands above and beyond them all. We need a metric to be able to judge all of these other voices out here and say, which voice is right and which one is wrong? What is good for me to do and what is good for me not to do? These are the things that the scripture gives us. This is why this was the metric that Paul used and he even told the Corinthians to use when it came to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, they were contemporaries of Jesus. 
So many of them saw and heard eyewitness testimonies that Paul even gives here in a moment. But what does he first say when he's giving his defense of the gospel? What he told them to stand on. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he says, For what I've received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, he's saying according to the scriptures when he heard and seen the story in real time. We're living 2,000 years later almost. And we didn't see the story in real time. And we go back to the scriptures. Why? To find the foundation of Christianity. But even Paul in the beginning of the church, he gave a metric for them to understand truth by. And that was the scriptures. For Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. In verse 4, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to what? The scriptures. According to the scripture is the metric. Now listen. I'm living in a day and hour where the church is forgetting this. Uh, I, I just listened to a, a popular preacher try to give his defense by putting the resurrection as the core belief and the eyewitness testimonies as the core belief of Christianity, not the scriptures. He, he's actually teaching his church not to say the Bible said He's wanting them to give a defense of Christianity by what we know are what witnesses said. Now, I'm going to tell you why the witnesses here that he mentions later on are important. But no, Paul didn't go to the witness testimony first. He went to the scripture's testimony first. And listen, Paul wasn't just talking to the Jew. He's talking to the Gentiles in Corinth as well. So again, the Jew knew the Old Testament scriptures, and that's what Paul's referring to. But still to the church, the New Testament church, though it came from Judaism, Paul is still letting them know the roots of God's word in the Old Testament is still God's word for all of their life and practice as well. Yes, there's some unique things that happen in the New Testament where there aren't so many Jewish laws the Gentiles have to receive. We see that in the apostles' writings. But he's wanting them to know that in the Old Testament scriptures which at the time of the early church, pretty much the canon, the 39 Old Testament books that make up our Bible in the Old Testament, they were already like listed as God's word, okay? Pretty much those 39 Old Testament books were set lists in New Testament times for Scripture. And that's what he's referring to. He's referring to these Old Testament Scriptures. And guess what? They foreshadowed. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That God spoke about this. If you look at the prophet Jonah, even Jesus gave this a defense as the sign that he would show everybody that he was the son of God. He says, I'm going to give you no other sign but the sign of the prophet Jonah. What happened to Jonah? He was buried in the sea for three days, and he was resurrected on the shore. You, you see the story of Jesus, even in the Old Testament. And so Paul's going back as, again, uh, the apologetic for our faith is that God had a plan that he wrote in his holy word that we can stake our claim to judge. And this is the metric we, where we could judge every other voice by. And so before that, they would believe just an eyewitness, because after all, an eyewitness can lie. He wanted them to believe in the word of God, the scripture. 
Now, I want you to understand where the New Testament then came from. So this book that Paul is writing, this letter that Paul is writing to the Corinthians, all the apostolic writings were actually being circulated in the church at this time as well. And they were actually considered to be scripture from the beginning. I want you to understand this because some people will look at the councils in the fourth century and they'll begin to say, well, the Bible in the New Testament wasn't actually considered uh, the scripture until 300 and something years after Jesus. All right. It was considered scripture when the apostles spoke it. <laughs> it was considered scripture when it was circulating in the church. And these letters were circulated. Matter of fact, Paul said, I want you to share this letter with the Laodiceans. I want them to share their letter with you. This was, for their life and practice, the holy word of God because it came through the apostles. You don't believe me? Let's look at the scripture. Because the scripture is our foundation. This is what Peter said about Paul's writings. This is what Peter said. This is a contemporary of Paul, again, another apostle. In 2 Peter 3, 16... He says he, Paul, he's talking about Paul, writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. By the way, ignorant and unstable people are still distorting the word of God today. I talked about this last week. They're still teaching and not rightly dividing what Scripture says and using Scripture to interpret Scripture and using context to understand context. People do that actually out of 1 Corinthians 15 where we're just reading and they talk about baptizing dead people because Paul mentions it once in passing saying they do it. And then some people say, well, we should baptize dead people. What? Like, no, that's not how we read scripture, all right? So ignorant and unstable people still distort the scripture, all right? And they did that with Paul's writings. They did that even with the gospel of grace, which we'll talk about next week. And it says this though, Peter's saying, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So he's comparing Paul's letters to what? Other scriptures. Why? Because again, even at the time of the New Testament, these letters that were being circulated, they were considered holy scripture. Why? The apostles we're writing these letters as under the inspiration of God. Remember, that's what he wrote to uh, Timothy, under the inspiration of God. And so where do we get the 27 books of the New Testament? This is important for us to understand. The 27 New Testament books were already in circulation in the church. We see that. But because of the rise of heresy, and because there were the Gospels of uh, Mary Magdalene, and there's a Gospel of Judas even out there, and it was written like a couple hundred years after Judas, and it says that Judas was the hero and all the other disciples were the villains. All right? So these things were beginning to circulate too. And this was heresy, right? And so the church said, okay, we got to actually say, we got we to gotta create a measuring tool for the New Testament canon. Canon means ruler, okay? And so they were wanting to say, okay, let's create, you know, what is the list of what we already know has been circulating in the church written by the apostle or a close associate with apostles. And that's where we get Mark from. That's where we get Luke from. They were close associates, all right? But we're gonna actually look at these scriptures and we're going to actually say, okay, these are the 27 books that we know without a shadow of doubt are inspired by God because they were written by the apostles or a close associate, all right? And they did that in the fourth century. Yes, they did. Why? Just to combat heresy. 
to give a ruler to the church to say, okay, we know this is good doctrine. We know what Paul said again to Timothy, that this is written for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. All right? We know that this was written within the first century. These were written by the apostles or close associates. And this was a ruler. And it's still a ruler for us today. I want to give you a story. When I was working at the bank, um, they taught us how to, ca- to catch a counterfeit dollar bill. Uh, it wouldn't be a dollar bill. No one's counterfeiting dollar bills. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're, counting the bigger, they're counterfeiting the bigger ones, all right? But when I was working at the bank, they wanted us to understand. So what did they do? Instead of teaching us what a counterfeit looked like, they taught us what the genuine looked like. All right, and so they showed us on a genuine dollar bill, they were, they're fibers. Even as the oldest our money is, like some of the oldest money that we have still has these red and blue fibers. And if you examine them, you can kind of see them, and they stick up off of the paper. You can see that. There's a certain feel to a real dollar. There's a certain feel to it. It's written on, uh, or it's, it's actually printed on this particular type of fabric. It's actually not even paper. It's like a type of fabric. And so anyway... They had us examine the real thing so that whenever we saw a counterfeit, we'd be able to catch the counterfeit. And I'll never forget one day, I'm counting through a big deposit, and I'm counting 20, 40, 60, 80, and then all of a sudden, I felt something. I was like, that ain't right. Just feel and touch, because I had examined it, I had felt it, I had touched it, I had handled it so often that the moment my finger touched, touched this other piece of money, I felt something was off. So I began to examine it. I looked at it, and I could see this thing is counterfeit. It doesn't have the, the face of the president like it should have had. It was a $100 bill, I believe. It doesn't have that. It doesn't have these fibers. I just felt it, and I examined it. I knew it was counterfeit, and so I turned it in. I want you to understand you could do the same thing with the Word of God. All right? All you have to do is get used to handling Genesis through Revelation. And if you're a new convert, read through the New Testament. Get familiar with the Bible. Get familiar handling the scripture. Get familiar with the doctrines in the New Testament. Get familiar with what the church has believed for centuries. And guess what? Whenever some other voice comes, you're going to be able to feel. That's off. Another voice is going to come and you're going to be like, eh, that's not, something's off here. Then you examine it. And sometimes you examine it and you're like, wow. That actually is deeper in the scripture. Other times you'll examine it and you'll see this is false doctrine. This is wrong because, again, you're so familiar with a metric that God gave his church to discern every other voice. And that is sola scriptura, the word of God. All right, here is then the third gift that sola scriptura is to the church. What does it give the church? It gives us a supreme authority. A supreme authority. One authority that is greater than any other authority. Now, I want you to know this. When we're saying sola scriptura, we're not saying that there aren't other authorities. There aren't other important things about tradition and things like that. There are other voices and authorities in the church. Leaders, testimony, early church fathers, and tradition even. All right? All of those are important. They're not but we just need to understand they're not as important as the scripture. All right. So if somebody else contradicts scripture and they might be an authority, it could be the pastor. It could be the pope. It could be somebody else, even a parent in your life. You're you're supposed to submit to the scripture even more than you are to submit to them, especially if they're telling you to do something that the scripture tells you not to do. 
This is why the reform, reformers were right under God by trying to bring this stuff to the local church, to the church at large, because they were outside of what Scripture had taught as right and good and trustworthy and good doctrine, right? And so we need to understand this. This will keep us safe. This will keep us right. So these eyewitness testimonies that Paul mentions here, he says that, listen, Christ appeared to um, Peter. He appeared to the rest of the 12. That's what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 15 as, as proof of the resurrection. Those were all important things. He even said he appeared to 500, and then he appeared to me as well. Paul said this. But remember, he put the, the more onus on the Scripture as the authority than he even did the eyewitness testimony. Why? It's the safer place. It's the safer place. Now, listen. Protestants and Catholics have a lot in common. We, we believe in the Trinity. We both believe in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. We even believe in the Holy Scriptures. But where we differ the most is where we believe and what we believe has the final say in a Christian's life. All right? This is where we find the most contradiction, the most, I guess, rub between Protestants and Catholics. Who has the final say in this thing? All right? Well, let's go to one of the times where we see a pope has just contradicted what we see as clear scripture. All right, this happened in 1950, so not too long ago. We don't have to go back to the Protestant Reformation. We can still see that this is coming from Roman Catholicism even today. All right, Pope Pius XII in 1950 invoked something called papal infallibility. All right, this means, and it's only happened a few times in Catholic church history, but it means whenever this, the Pope will invoke this doctrine that they have, he is speaking like the Scripture, it's infallible. Meaning, whatever he's going to say right there is 100% the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? It is equal to Scripture when the Pope would invoke this doctrine called papal infallibility. And when he invoked this, he announced a doctrine for the church to believe, what they had been believing, but they never had it as equal to Scripture. And this is called a Catholic dogma. A dogma is a teaching that the Catholics have. When it is a real teaching like this, it is necessary for your salvation. So for you to die and go to heaven, you have to believe what he is about to say. And this is what he says in 1950. The Immaculate Mother of God, the ever-Virgin Mary completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. All right. This is what he said is papal infallibility, this doctrine that is equal to the scripture that you have to believe for your salvation. The problem is, immediately as he starts, he contradicted the scripture that he says he's equal to. Let's examine this for a moment. Again, here's one thing. He claims that Mary was immaculate, meaning Mary had never sinned. This is him speaking as if he was God speaking, and he's saying this is infallible. This, there's, you cannot challenge this. This is the word of God. But he contradicts the word of God because the scripture says in Romans 3.23, 1 Peter 2.22, that all have sinned except for one. Not Mary, 
Jesus. So he starts off by saying the immaculate mother of God. And by the way, there is no mother of God. Mary birthed Jesus, the son of God, yes. He was, she was conceived by God himself. God himself became a man. Mary was just the instrument. Just like the Pope, just like the pastor, just like you, just like me. We're just instruments. Come on. God receives all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. But he says, or they say, she's immaculate. Never had sinned. You've contradicted scripture and you've put yourself on equal grounds of scripture. Listen, when you stand before God like that on judgment day and you've done said papal infallibility, I can't imagine what that's gonna be like on judgment day standing before a holy God who you actually said you're speaking on his behalf and you're lying. He might've thought that he was speaking the truth, but he's lying. Here's another thing that this claims. Again, equal to the scriptures, this claims that Mary was ever virgin. Well, according to Mark 6, 3, Jesus had other siblings. Two of them wrote scripture, (laughs) James and Jude. Yet this Pope is giving this decree and this dogma saying papal infallibility, this is the word of God, and he's contradicting the word of God, not even looking at James and Jude, who wrote two books in the New Testament, who were brothers to Jesus. Now, what makes this even worse doctrine, what makes this even worse, what the the Catholic Church did here, is they actually made it a dogma that is necessary for salvation, meaning something for you to believe. And if you don't believe this, you won't be saved. Now, listen to me. This is why the scripture is our final authority. And this has to be what we look at for all of our faith and practice, because people can change and say, God said this and that and the other. We needed something again, that is above all of our voices, the voice of the Lord through the scripture. Because look what Paul says here. And Paul makes this clear in Galatians 1.8. I'm gonna end the message with this. Galatians 1.8. Paul says, but even if we, I want you to mark this. Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach another gospel than what we preach to you, let him be under God's curse. Where does Paul put his authority compared to the gospel's authority. Did you catch this? He says, but even if we or an angel should preach another gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be under God's curse. Paul views the scripture's authority as greater than his. The Catholic church, they claim that they have the keys of St. Peter. And because of this, this is an apostolic transfer from Peter all the way down to the modern Pope that they have the same authority that Peter had as an apostle. Well, guess what? Paul says even our authority is under the gospel's authority. 
And you're telling me and you're telling a billion person religion that you have to believe that Jesus was assumed into heaven for you to be saved? No, the gospel is this, that Jesus, God's son, became a man. Yes, he was born of the virgin, but he was the one who lived a sinless life because we couldn't. And he paid for every one of our sins when he shed his blood on the cross. And three days later, he rose again from the dead. He assumed into heaven. That is the gospel. That's what we believe. That's what matters. And if anybody else preaches another gospel, according to Paul, even if he did it, he says, let me be a curse. Listen, sola scriptura is the safest foundation for the Christian church, for Christian faith, for Christian practice. It tells us the story, the whole story. Now, it doesn't tell us everything, but it tells us everything necessary. It doesn't tell us literally everything. Everything, all knowledge isn't in the Bible, but all necessary knowledge is in the Bible. That is sola scriptura. That's what the reformers stood on. And guess what? That's what I'm standing on today. I'm just inviting y'all to do the same. I've seen one place that is safer than any other place. It's the scriptures. I've seen men come and go. I've seen popes come and go. I've seen, I've seen kings come and go, presidents come and go, politicians come and go. I've seen my emotions come and go. But there's one thing that remains the same. The scriptures. It's our safe place. It's where we are to stand and stand on firm. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me today? Thanks for joining us for worship today. I'm John Collier, and I hope today has inspired you to love God and to love others more. We always wanna take some time at the end to pray for you, especially if this is the first time of believing that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of our sins. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross and raise again so that he can be king and we don't have to be. Help us to learn more about you so we can live more like you. (laughs) We want you to connect with us and we want to connect with you. You can comment down below or go to diversitychurch.net and we'll see you again next week.